This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for March 18th, 2010. We can be found at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Alby. On the program today, we'll have a conversation with McDonald Stainsby. He is an anti-Tarsans activist and he'll be talking about the controversial appointment of Zipporah Berman to Greenpeace International. And I'll be chatting with Sid Schneid, who's the co-chair of Independent Jewish Voices and who made this year's shit list. Also, I'll talk to Devlin Kuyek. He is a senior researcher with Grain, and we'll be talking about the startling land grab that is happening in African countries. We're going to have our alert headlines. And music is the weapon. As well as Around the Left. And now for the alert headlines for the week of March 18th, 2010. Dozens of protesters were detained after bottles and firecrackers were thrown at police officers during an annual police brutality demonstration in Montreal. Ahead of the march, organizers made an appeal for calm from both demonstrators and police. But as demonstrators wound their way through the streets, several cars, including police cruisers, were damaged. A pickup truck full of construction material was also set on fire, according to reports. Police finally intervened about an hour and a half after the march began and handcuffed protesters, herding them onto Montreal Transport Corporation buses. The protesters were expected to face charges, including unlawful assembly and disturbing the peace. This year marked the 14th annual protest and as during previous years, organizers refused to disclose their planned route to police. The National Union of Public and General Employees is joining the international campaign for a Robin Hood tax on major banks around the globe. The campaign has taken off in Britain and is being endorsed by millions of citizens around the world, as well as organizations and groups, including the International Trade Union Federation. The campaign calls on G20 leaders to place a 0.05% tax on financial transactions, one that campaigners believe could generate $400 billion Canadian dollars a year. Funds from the tax would be used to pay for the social costs of the economic crisis, to fight global poverty, to meet global public needs such as health care, and to mitigate and adapt to the impact of climate change. It would also contribute to greater stability within the financial system by reducing speculation and excessive liquidity. Canada has ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities on the eve of the Paralympic Games in Vancouver. The convention will require provincial governments to update several laws, including making schools inclusive to all students. That means disabled students can no longer be diverted to special schools as some still are. The Toronto Film Critics Association has joined a growing body of international opinion urging the release of Iranian filmmakers Jafar Panahai and Mahmoud Razalov, who are being held in solitary confinement in an Iranian prison without charges. Brian Johnson, president of the Toronto Film Critics Association, issued this statement, quote, At stake is fundamental freedom of expression. 
Panahai is by any measure a major international director whose films have shed light on the plight of the poor and especially women in Iran. Now he's been used as an example to anyone in Iran who wants to speak out and show an honest portrait of the society's faults, Mr. Johnson concluded. Israel's ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, has reportedly said U.S.-Israeli relations are facing their worst crisis in 35 years. Oren's comments come one week after Israel announced it would build 1,600 new homes in the settlement of Ramat Shlomo. Israel made the announcement just as Vice President Joseph Biden arrived in the country for talks. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton told Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the announcement harmed the bilateral relationship between the two countries. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu voiced regret over the timing of the announcement of the Jewish settlement plan, but he did not give any sign that Israel would cancel the construction project. Over 43 people have been killed in the Somali capital of Mogadishu in two days of fighting between Shabab insurgent forces and troops of the U.S.-backed transitional federal government. Media reports have accused the U.S. African Command in Djibouti of waging an American-style proxy war in the West African nation. Assistant Secretary of State Johnny Carson said U.S. officials were ready to get more militarily involved as Somalia's government fights the Islamist al-Shabaab, which has been linked to al-Qaeda. Carson said the United States had provided about $185 million over the last 19 months to support African Union peacekeepers and about $12 million in direct support to the Somali transitional government. Eurozone finance ministers meeting in Brussels say they have agreed to a financial rescue plan for debt-ridden Greece. But their announcement remains distinctly short on detail. Greece needs to borrow $75 billion this year to plug a gap between revenue and expenses to keep the country running. Greek civil servants have promised to strike again to protest these austerity measures. Greece's government is under pressure from the markets and the European Union to implement deficit-cutting measures, which include public sector salary cuts, tax increases and a pension freeze, but faces massive union opposition. And those are the alert headlines for the week of March 18th, 2010. And now around the left for March 18th, 2010. The Old Market Autonomous Zone at 91 Albert Street in Winnipeg is home to Mondragon, Natural Cycle, Canadian Dimension Magazine and many more. The owner of 15 years has decided to sell the building but has given the tenants and supporters of this building the opportunity to purchase and cooperatively manage the A-Zone. But in order to do this, we need funds. On Saturday, March 20th, there will be a kickoff meeting to introduce and launch the fundraising campaign. There will be a reading of the bases of unity, reports from organizational committees, the unveiling of the fundraising campaign graphic materials, a Q&A and refreshments. The meeting begins at 7.30 at Mondragon. All are welcome. Over 3,600 employees of Vale Inco have been on strike now for eight months against the Brazilian multinational that bought Inco and wants to cut pensions and benefits. The steelworkers, OFL, and CLC are organizing buses from across the province of Ontario to bring activists to the Bridging the Gap Solidarity Rally on March 22nd in Sudbury. This crucial struggle deserves all our support. For bus info, contact Lori Hardwick at the OFL at... 416 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416- 416
443-7657. The rally begins at 4.30 at the USW Local 6500 Hall in Sudbury. Ian Angus is the editor of the online journal Climate and Capitalism and Socialist Voice. The Global Fight for Climate Justice is a collection of essays edited by Angus that offer answers to the most important questions of our day. Why is capitalism destroying the conditions that make life on Earth possible? How can we stop the destruction before it's too late? This book is being launched on March 23rd at Octopus Books, 116 3rd Avenue in Ottawa. The launch begins at 7 p.m. Restructuring Work in the 21st Century is a new volume edited by Noreen Popo and Mark Thomas. To celebrate the release of this book, there will be a launch at 626 York Research Tower at York University on March 25th at 3.30 p.m. Speakers for this event include Greg Albo, Steve Tufts, Linda Briskin, Angelo DiCarlo, and more. The group Not In Our Name Jewish Voices Opposing Zionism is hosting a public forum dispelling the myths of progressive Zionism. The panel includes Dana Olwyn of Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights Kingston and Catherine Nestovsky of Labour for Palestine Toronto. Herman Rosenfeld will be the moderator for the evening. This forum is held in Room 5-260 at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto on March 26th at 7.30 p.m. In 2008, the photographer Louis Helberg flew across the country in a 1946 antique aircraft. The aerial perspective allowed him to see our country in a unique way, especially the Alberta tar sands. Gallery DK in Toronto is now hosting an exhibition that features the photographs Helberg took of the Alberta tar sands. Beautiful Destruction, Alberta tar sands aerial photographs, runs until March 28th at Gallery DK, 1332 Queen Street, Street in Toronto. And that's Around the Left for the week of March 18th, 2010. Alert Radio is the official podcast of Canada's leading progressive political magazine, Canadian Dimension. If you'd like to order a subscription to Canadian Dimension, go to our website at canadiandimension.com or pick up our latest issue on newsstands today. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. On February 13th, Greenpeace International announced it was hiring Forest Ethics founder Zipporah Berman as director of its global climate and energy campaign. The move has provoked intense outrage among many Greenpeace supporters, staff, and activists. We have on the phone from his office in Vancouver, McDonald Stainsby, he is an anti-Tarsans activist based out of Edmonton, Alberta, and one of the creators of the website SaveGreenpeace.org. Welcome to Alert Ra- uh, Radio, McDonald Stainsby. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. So can you tell us about Zipporah Berman? Now, she is known as one of the heroines of the Canadian enviro- environmental movement, but that is obviously a bit out of date. What is there about her that has caused her pending appointment to Greenpeace International to be so controversial? Well, there's a lot of various reasons. Uh, I would say that you can look at the trajectory of the career she's held over the last 15 years, and you can see a shifting away very clearly from grassroots base, uh, one that she sort of found herself in the middle of in Clackwood Sound and was immediately photogenic and was well-liked by cameras and so forth. Um, but shortly into the next into the next, uh, let's say, six or seven years, anyhow, when forest ethics came to be, 
It actually came to be in the middle of the campaign around the Great Bear Rainforest. She had been still with Greenpeace Canada at that point and jumped ship to be one of the founders of Forest Ethics, who then established what has become the norm in a most disastrous way in B.C., which is a closed-door negotiating process or the collaborative model with corporations. What happened at this point was, despite the fact that there had been, first off, the First Nation, uh, the New Salk, had been uh, trying to deal with Great Bear Rainforest logging for decades, there had also been several grassroots organizations, uh, People's Action for Threatened Habitat, a group called Bear Watch, another group, Forest Action Network, who had been carrying out uh, roving logging blockades and so forth. Those groups were immediately sidelined. Forest Ethics, along with uh, Greenpeace at that time, at that time, the Rainforest Action Network, who have since distanced themselves from the history of it, and the Sierra Club of BC, went into private negotiating with the government and with corporations that were involved in the logging, with like BC Forest Products and so forth. And what happened at that point was they signed non-disclosure agreements, would not tell the junior partners in there who had done all the grunt work building this movement for some years and basically not only cut a deal that was out of any kind of democratic input, but cut a deal that was actually less than what they eventually got. There was a challenge uh, based on First Nations land use planning that actually brought the final number up. Scientists had said the Great Bear Rainforest would be protected at minimum with 44% of its territory permanently marked for uh, preservation. They got in their initial deal, just over 20%, which got bumped to just over 30% as a result of nothing to do with forest ethics and Ms. Berman's backroom deal. Shortly after that, or not shortly after that, but over the last few years, uh, Ms. Berman has become more and more of a corporate flagship for the government as opposed to an environmentalist on behalf of the earth. Uh, there's a new organization she started a few years back called Power Up. Um, a power-up organization's sole purpose, along with uh, corporations like Plutonic Power and General Electric and Alcan and so forth, is to set up the small dams, or on small only on a relative scale to something like Hoover, but the damming of up to perhaps 600 rivers in B.C. There are only 700 left that have not been damaged in a very, very river-based province, and that being British Columbia. That organization is entirely funded by uh, foundations. It is entirely funded outside of the realm of members, uh, people in the public at large like yourself or myself. That organization also posits that these small dams will create clean energy and that eventually, although there's no legislation to force this in any way, shape, or form, will bring down the need and reliance on fossil fuels. But all of that was really capped off in the most extreme way by what happened during the last provincial election, which a few days prior to the election, the Great Bear Rainforest was signed into law by, uh, by Gordon Campbell. And in what certainly had the appearance of a deal within a couple of days, Ms. Berman, alongside um, the David Suzuki Foundation, Pembina Institute, and the Dogwood Initiative, all of a sudden came out and directly attacked the NDP and directly supported the Gordon Campbell Liberals, despite the fact that they promote Tar Sands Pipeline through the Enbridge Gateway, the removal of the offshore oil and gas moratorium, massive development in northeastern B.C.'s natural gas deposits, uh, one of the largest left in North America. We could go on for a rather long list 
of their environmental crimes. Well, I'd like to actually to, uh, to address the rift in Greenpeace uh, that this has caused, her appointment. Now, well, I want... I'm, I'm almost at that point. Um, basically, as a result of what happened there, they endorsed uh, Campbell. Shortly thereafter, Ms. Berman went to Copenhagen and presented an award to Gordon Campbell for his pathetically weak uh, carbon tax. And that itself has basically provoked outrage because Greenpeace is known as an organization that is against oil and gas, will do direct action to confront coal mining right at the point where it happens and so forth. Ms. Berman also is for offsetting the idea that one development can be offset by another lack of development elsewhere. It's similar to carbon uh, tra- crop and trade schemes and similar things of this sort. Um, where this has gone right now is that at first, everybody within Greenpeace that I spoke to, which wasn't everybody, uh, but a good number of people, all agreed that Ms. Berman, uh, particularly within a couple of days of having got off an electric scooter, where on similar territories that people had been trying to pretend, or sorry, to protect, had been carrying the Olympic torch. So what had happened at that point, people within Greenpeace were quite upset, quite concerned, but Greenpeace does not have any internal accountability mechanisms or external accountability mechanisms beyond financial, meaning that if you're inside the organization, you can't challenge your boss. You can't call for anything other than maybe a coffee and try to talk them out of it in a friendly manner. When it became clear that Greenpeace Canada was going to go along with Greenpeace International's hire of Ms. Berman, um, there has been kind of an about face amongst people who had prior been wanting to do something to prevent this. Some people continue to try to find ways quietly within the organization to bring about this issue and to call her question. But at this point, there seems to be within the organization a large number of people have taken the fait accompli kind of approach to where things are at. Well, that's an opportunity for me to ask you, McDonald Stainsby, about uh, the, you know what one of your colleagues has written that the conflict raging within Green, Greenpeace has the potential to be an important first step, actually, opportunity here in addressing two heretofore taboo subjects in the environmental movement, the corrupting influence of corporate cash and the absence of democratic structures, as you just alluded, alluded to. Now, let's look at each of these in turn. First, the corrupting influence of cash. Now, it seems obvious, but please elaborate for us why it's corrupting for environmental groups to take donations from corporations. Well, as that article in The Nation put very well two weeks ago, if at the United Nations annually, Amnesty International, were to present its human rights record, and on the bottom line of the first page it said, brought to you by the Burmese junta and Dick Cheney, people would say that's a slight problem. But if you're going to have a major environmental organization that is funded by Exxon, and in cases like uh, the Pemina Institute or open partnership with Suncor, the largest Canadian energy corporation, as well as the oldest and largest tar sand player, you know, there's definitely going to be a problem when it comes down to trying to come up with solutions because you don't work in a consensus model and eliminate one of the partners. And so, therefore, by the very existence of these partnerships, they guarantee that they cannot be shut down or phased out. That it in itself is corrupting when you're dealing with something as crucial and as immediate as climate change, where we don't have time to negotiate our way. Because the Earth isn't negotiating, the Earth is just responding. And that's where we've got this issue. Greenpeace does not take major corporate funding as of yet. Ms. Berman not only has a history of taking these kinds of uh, deals with various people at both government and corporate level, 
but also will want to work in the same kind of backroom methods as in, as has been done in the last 10 years in her own record. With that as like the premise, that's where a lot of the concern comes from. But there are people across the entire planet who are desperate to get rid of the corrupting influence of corporations that have managed to weasel their way into groups from the NRDC to the WWF and so forth. And what has essentially happened, what has been making this uh, like ridiculously easy for us to quote-unquote campaign around, is that we don't have to do anything. This is symbolic. This is completely highlighting the very issues that people want to have raised anyway. And you could say that a lot of people who are grassroots environmentalists are drawing a line in the sand and saying, enough, thus far, no further. We don't need more people who will find ways to collaborate with Gordon Campbell, with people like Ed Stelmack, and with Suncor, and so forth. And this is not only the model there, but it's also reinvesting in people their right to have a say. The kind of letters that we've received at SaveGreenPeace.org speak to their decades of uh, dedication as individuals to supporting what they see as an honest organization. But these individuals are... a way for people to focus and challenge the lack of democratic structure. And at this point, people are kind of fed up with the idea that all they can do is stop giving $20 a month or whatever their current uh, way of helping the organization is. These organizations only exist, as they say themselves, because of the volunteer work and because of the support of the people of the population at large. Well, how will we resolve these issues of the anti-democratic nature of many of the environmental structures that are operating? Well, at this point, what we've got is a lot of people who are starting to really try to come up with alternative methods of organizing. It won't be, in my opinion, um, a chance of going out and just cleaning house of the executive director's board of this or that organization but also building up parallel structures that are infused with that. The United States has a group that is expanding at an incredible rate called Rising Tide. They're trying to take a series of networks of grassroots organizers who have a very direct confrontational approach to things like coal and rejection of things like cap and trade and carbon offsets as a method of being able to vote democratically and sparsely in the sense of having a lot of what amount to uh, local ties into their larger network. Those kinds of ways of approaching things and having a democratic approach at the beginning is just starting up as a major challenge. But the reasoning is that historically, even more so than any other social justice arena I can think of, the idea that you call out another organization or you question the way somebody else does things if they do them different than you is not one that has historically been looked up to. People have been discouraged from having that kind of critique with so much on the line and with corporations getting further and further dominance around environmental NGOs throughout the world, that has basically broken down. And we're starting to see what I think might be a real pushback on perhaps a global level. If definitely uh, just a North American level, then we'll have to start there. But that's where we're at now. And a lot of this comes out of rejection of what happened in Copenhagen, where there was effectively uh, the ENGOs that came out of the North American regions had worse demands than social society or social service groups coming from uh, places like Africa and so forth, their demands completely lined up with industry. Uh, if one looks at the statistics that the scientists tell us we need to deal with in parts per million for carbon in the atmosphere, 350 is what scientists like James Hansen have to say. So these organizations are talking about 450 to 550, which 
at that point, we're talking several degree temperature change. We're talking major disasters around the planet. But it is something that if you're working in a consensus model, you can get industry to talk about because that can't be achieved for 40 years anyway, and it gives them time to stall and do what they want to do. So where the democratic input comes in there is that, that that's talked about in the sense of corporations are inevitable. Corporations must exist. And the disaster capitalist model that Jim Naomi Klein describes for uh, places like the reconstruction of Haiti and the way they've dealt with Iraq and Chile in the 70s and so forth is exactly the kind of infusion of thought that we are trying to fight back with, with both on the appointment of Zipporah Berman in particular, but the environmental movement in general. Well, thank the you. Idea that things are just so bad that climate change is just so urgent, true, 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 that therefore what we need to do is just gut what's left of our own social rights, what are, what's left of our political economic rights, hand over all that power to corporations in the hope that they will solve the problem for us. Very, very false and very, very suicidal, really, on a planetary level. Thank you very much, McDonald Stainsby. The website is savegreenpeace.org. This is Alert Radio. We're at CanadianDimension.com, and I appreciate your time this afternoon. Not a problem. Thank you. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. An amazing global land grab is taking place as we speak. Vast portions of the most fertile lands in Africa are being bought off or leased by multinational businesses. Why is this happening and what are the consequences for the people of Africa among the poorest in the world? To answer these questions, Alert has contacted Devlin Kueck, a senior researcher with Grain. Grain is an international organization whose mission in sub- is supporting people's movement on agriculture, food, and biodiversity. We contacted Devlin at his office in Montreal. Welcome to Alert Radio, Devlin Kuick. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Well, this is most startling indeed. Can you give us some examples? What land is being grabbed and by whom? Well, it's hard to say with uh, much precision. Most of these deals, of course, are happening behind closed doors, so it's um, it's difficult to say exactly how much land we're talking about and uh, who the actors are. But we have been doing research into this for the last couple years, and uh, ever since the food crisis broke out in 2008, when we started noticing the first sort of signs of this phenomenon. And there really are two types of investors. You have, on the one hand, you have states, uh, governments uh, of countries that are cash-rich but have food security issues. And there I mean the Gulf countries um, who have a lot of money, but they aren't able to produce enough food for for the people. Same thing with uh, China, which has uh, long-term food security questions, uh, Japan, Korea. And these countries were quite, I think, alarmed by what happened with the food crisis in that they couldn't buy food at, on the global market. It was uh, the, the market had, was simply not functioning anymore. Uh, it became very difficult uh, to access rice at no matter what price. And uh, food uh, security, food sovereignty became uh, something of, uh, on, on their agendas once again. And then you have, uh, on the other side, you have those investors from the private sector who are simply looking to make a profit. 
In both cases, really, it's the private sector that's, that's operating. But uh, their, their ambitions in these cases is to acquire farmland overseas uh, in areas where they can get it for cheap, uh, where there's fertile land, take over that farmland and uh, produce for, for export. In the case of the countries like the Gulf countries, they're looking to export directly to their own markets. In the case of some of these private investors, uh, whether we're talking about George Soros or Goldman Sachs or uh, any of the large institutional investors, even pension plans in, in Canada, uh, they're looking to uh, export to the, the global market generally. Devlin, can you tell us, uh, can you name some of these countries that are being uh, bought, where the fertile land is being bought by these uh, Gulf countries? Where in Africa is this happening? Well, it's happening pretty much everywhere in Africa. I, unfortunately, many governments see this as a big opportunity for them to, uh, to make some cash and to fulfill the kind of neoliberal model of uh, attracting foreign investment. But uh, some of the, the main countries that we know of um, would be Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia is currently, the, the government in power there is trying to uh, lease out 3 million hectares of land. That's a considerable amount of the arable land in the country. Uh, and most of these lands, of course, are contested lands. These are, put, these are lands where you have small farmers and pastoralists currently living. Uh, Tanzania... Uh, Mali, uh, Zambia, Mozambique, I mean, the, list, the list goes on. But throughout Africa, and then you have Latin America and Asia as well. Now, you mentioned that this is happening largely in response to the 2008 global food price crisis, but what is the result of, of this uh, foreign policy, or what's going on here in Africa with this land grab? What is happening to the people, what happens to the people that are replaced, and what is the environmental impact? What well, the, again, you, you know, you're not seeing so much on the ground just yet. Most of this is in the stage of deal-making. So the land is being negotiated and sold off, whether on long-term leases. I'm talking about 99 years there, so it's you know, a few generations of farmers. Uh, and the kind of projects that they're, that they're seeking to put in place are large-scale uh, industrial agriculture projects where you'd bring in the machinery, you'd level the land, you'd bring in irrigation, uh, you'd be using chemicals, uh, whether it's chemical fertilizers or pesticides. So if you can think about, uh, I'm not sure how many of your listeners would be familiar with what happened in Brazil and Argentina with this sort of soybean invasion, uh, where you had vast areas of land taken over by um, GMO soybeans. And these large, really, they're, they're plantations, although there are very few laborers there. And the, the impacts on the communities are devastating, and also on the biodiversity and the ecosystem. And that's the kind of agriculture that's being put into operation in, in Africa. Are there any good, what about the good consequences that are touted by these uh, investors for the local populations and the environment? Well, yeah, there's a lot of talk of win-win uh, scenarios. Uh, you know, that you can harness this money to try to bring some uh, much-needed investment to these poor parts of the world. But the kind of investment that we're talking about here has very little to do with uh, local communities. Um, for instance, in Ethiopia, I was talking to a, a man who's from the uh, Anuak uh, community. It's an indigenous community in Gambela province, where uh, much of the land grabbing in Ethiopia is happening. And he's saying that any jobs that are created, these are going to be for Ethiopia, and they won't be for the local, local people, indigenous people. 
and it's a it's a means of actually colonizing their areas. Plus, the types of uh, agriculture that will be uh, practiced will be completely at odds with the needs of the ecosystem. And the indigenous people who are living there have been uh, doing a, a, a form of agriculture very much in harmony and balance with the the, the, the agricultural land or the land. Whereas in other parts of Ethiopia, where you've had a move to more sort of green revolution style agriculture, more so-called modern style agriculture, it's decimated the land. And a, a good reason for a part of the reason, anyways, for the ongoing famines in Ethiopia has to do with lack of fertility in the soil um, because of the uh, uh, improper agricultural practices. And that's the kind of agriculture that's moving into to these areas. And of course, all the profits are going to be exported. The only reason why investors are getting involved in this is to make a lot of money. And so there's, a, there's no intention of keeping any of those profits within, within the countries where they're going. In fact, in, if you look at um, the kinds of uh, bilateral agreements that are being worked out, one of the main specifications is that the companies be able, or the investors be able to uh, to move their, their their revenues outside of the country. So it, as far as the, the possibilities for win-win go, it, I mean, it, as, as we see it, there's, it's simply unrealistic. And it's a, it's a distraction from the real issue, which is the, the food crisis. The, the fact is that we have a global food crisis right now where you have over a billion people in the world who can't get enough to eat because, by and large because they can't afford uh, the food that's on the market. And 80% of the people who are, who are uh, suffering from hunger are food workers and food producers. These are uh, farm workers. So it's rural people who are producing the food uh, that the planet needs who are the ones suffering the most. Well, if you want to talk about resolving the food crisis, it means investing or supporting uh, the food production of, of, of these people. Well, what about, yes, tell us more about the opposition to what is going on in Africa. Devlin Kuyek. Well, it started off a little bit slowly. I think people were um, caught a bit unaware. Uh, this, thing, this phenomenon has erupted quite quickly. Partly what's happening is there's so much... In the way globalization is, there's so much capacity for money to be moved around, billions of dollars to be moved around the planet very quickly. So in a country like Ethiopia, where they're uh, leasing land for a dollar a hectare, essentially selling land for a dollar a hectare, you can imagine how much the, a, a big investor could, could purchase in a country like that. So the size of these deals really caught people off guard. I mean, nobody had heard of uh, some investor, foreign investor coming in and wanting to buy 100,000 hectares. I think that was, you know, and we're, in some cases, we're even looking at over a million hectares that investors are looking at. And this has been rather unheard of. So, so it's a bit of a shock. And then people, because land is such a fundamental issue, it's such a, it's such a sacred thing to people, um, the, to imagine your government selling off your country in this way, I think it's, it's difficult for people to grasp and to, to deal with. Then why are they doing it? What have, how are these governments justifying this? Well, if you look at the case of Madagascar, where this is one of the, the most outrageous scandals where the government behind everybody's back sold off uh, over a million hectares to Daewoo, a Korean corporation. And the people revolted and actually overthrew the government. I think that was really the tipping point of that deal, and the government was a, quite a corrupt one. But their motivation, essentially, uh, is it's quite 
for them to fit it within the whole paradigm that they've been following, you know, that's been dictated and by the World Bank and all kinds of experts for the last 20 years and imposed through structural adjustment programs. And for a government in Africa, this is following the formula. Here you have investors, foreign investors, who are coming in willing to, to put in some money, even though relatively it's very little, but here they're looking to put in some money. And you can move ahead with these big uh, investment projects. So it fits very easily with uh, the ongoing discourse. Plus, most of these governments are, are run by elites, and they're very disconnected from the, from the local population, particularly the rural populations who have been suffering for decades under these regimes. So here, again, you can push off what you see as the backwards uh, elements of their country and bring in these foreign investors uh, who have lots of money and lots of modern equipment, and you start looking like a, a modern government. Of course, what it means for local people is, is greatly uh, different. Devlin Kuyek, where can our listeners get more information? Well, uh, we manage a, an open publishing site called Farmland Grab. Dot org, and the website is just uh, the name. And it's a clearinghouse of information on the issue. So you, there's articles there daily about some of these, uh, these deals happening. And you can search it through by country or by investor. Uh, we've also produced a few reports on the issue, which are available on the GRAIN website at uh, www.grain.org. And uh, there are other websites, and there's links on the on, on our webpage that you'll be able to find information to. Via Campesina has been uh, one organization that has been doing some some work on this issue. Initiating, they we did a joint declaration at the uh, the food summit in Rome as well. Well, Devlin Kuyuk, I'd like to thank you for coming on Alert Radio today. But I'd also like to take this moment to invite our listeners across across the country to come and see a play that I wrote. Unequal Harvest in the cities of Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Victoria, which deals with many of the issues that you and I have discussed on, in, during this interview, the Green Revolution, Via Campesina, and how we are going to feed future generations. So thank you very much for keeping this issue alive. Devlin Kuyek. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure talking to you. Sid Schneid is the co-chair of Independent Jewish Voices, a growing national organization in Canada that condemns the continuing Israeli occupation of Palestine lands. We have him on the line from his home in Vancouver. Congratulations, Sid. Along with several other contributors to Canadian Dimension and Alert, you made it on this year's shit list. Uh, I can't actually believe I'm saying this shit on air, but I am. And we want to ask you, A, about how it feels to be to be listed first off uh, but before we get to that I want you to tell us what the acronym stands for because it is an acronym um, S-H-I-T with a period of course in between each letter um, what does it stand for? This is something called the self-hating and or Israel threatening list revealingly the home page of the site is called Israel 101 a survival kit for dummies the voice of reality and it quotes racist extremist Rabbi Meir Kahana as its inspiration. Oh my. Okay, so firstly, how do you feel about being on the shit list? 
I feel great. I've been working hard for years and resented the fact that I've been overlooked, and I've finally made it within the last year or so, and I feel like it's a tribute to my hard work, and I felt I was being ignored before. Okay, and so who determines um, who gets put on this list, Sid? Well, uh, apparently this is uh, linked to the followers of Meyer Kahana, and it you look at their website, it's www.masada, M-A-S-A-D-A 2000. That's one word, masada2000.org. Masada is the name of the site in ancient, of ancient palaces and fortifications that exist in southern Israel on top of an isolated rock plateau that overlooks the Dead Sea. It was after the first Jewish-Roman War at the, and the siege of the fortress by the troops of the Roman Empire that Jewish rebels who were holed up there committed mass suicide, ostensibly preferring death to surrender. It gives you some idea of where these people are coming from ideologically. Okay, and so um, who else is on the list? Give us some examples of people that our listeners uh, would likely know. Well, I'm in the, now in the August company of people like Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, Internationally renowned jurist Richard Goldstone, who recently wrote the Goldstone Report about Israel's attack on Gaza and has been smeared and slandered for that, and former member of the Israeli Knesset, Shalomit Aloni. In addition, uh, Woody Allen is on the website, and they got a quote from him, and they used the quote, to, I guess, to disparage him, but I think he, what he says is, takes an excellent position. Woody Allen says here, quote, I'm appalled beyond measure by the treatment of the rioting Palestinians by the Jews. Perhaps for all of us who are rooting for Israel to continue to exist and prosper, the obligation is to speak out and use every method of pressure, moral, financial, and political, to bring this wrong-headed approach to a halt. Interesting. Interesting. And again, many would agree with him, but obviously this particular uh, list doesn't agree uh, that the people that they've listed on it um, are doing Israel... Uh, any good? Well, they go beyond that. I mean, they call people who take these positions critical of Israel, they describe them as self-haters or Israel-threatening. Which, Pretty bizarre. Which seems uh, ludicrous, to say the least. Uh, any Canadians on the list? Uh, there is page after page after page of people on this list. So, I mean, it's worth a look for your listeners to see who's listed on here. I'm sure there are a lot of Canadians. I, I just can't think of anything off the top of my head. And so, I mean, Noam Chomsky, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a famous linguist. Uh, so they've gone for all over the map. They've, they've really scoured and, and picked people from all over. Oh, for sure. From different fields, from different... Um, Anyone who has the temerity to criticize Israel and its treatment of Palestinians. Right. And so how did it get started? What was the... You know, where did this all get going with this apparent rabbi that is the uh, person well, who started I think, it? Uh, you know, it has its roots in the movement that Kahana established, and these guys have uh, really sorted uh, history and uh, track record. One of Kahana's uh, followers, uh, an American Jew from Brooklyn uh, named Goldstein, went to Hebron, was a, he was an, um, a medical doctor, and he one day took an uh, assault rifle into the mosque in Hebron and shot 29 uh, Muslims who were praying there, shot them dead. Wow. And this guy is celebrated as one of the heroes of the movement that Kahana put uh, together. 
And uh, these are the kind of people who are behind this effort. Uh, they're trying to intimidate uh, Jews who are not on side their uh, project and their worldview into silence or, and submission. And so, again, the purpose of the list is what you just said. Yep. Okay. And so one of the individuals listed this year, um, Sid, has actually contacted the hate crimes unit of her local police department. What's your comments on that? I'm reluctant to go down that road. I really loathe to invoke hate crimes legislation because I think that hate crimes are largely in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes we could agree that something is a hate crime, but I don't know that they, uh, hate crimes should be treated than any other crimes. I don't think that making statements, uh, regardless of how loathsome we find them, should be subject to criminal penalties. And if people take actions, then I think that the uh, existing sanctions under the criminal code should be used to uh, handle the, their actions. I think there's a real danger, particularly among activists and progressives, that uh, hate crimes legislation will be used against them. And I know of an instance, for uh, example, in British Columbia, when there was an attempt on the part of some corporations to invoke hate crimes legislation against environmentalists that were criticizing the corporate behavior. So I think that it's a real slippery slope when we start using the cops to enforce those things. And fair enough. Um, any other thoughts on this whole shit list? I think, in a way, the existence of such extreme uh, positions and uh, examples of uh, things like this uh, website uh, shows that uh, the sands are shifting very rapidly and dramatically on the subject of Israel and Palestine. I think the attempt to... Uh, silence critics inside the Jewish community and beyond by uh, adherence of Israel is uh, symptomatic of the same thing. And I think that at long last, things seem to be changing and people's eyes are opening on the subject of Israel and Palestine. And we have to redouble our efforts to uh, come to the aid of the Palestinian victims of this longest standing occupation. Well, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts, and uh, congratulations on being on the shit list. Thanks very much. Okay, and that was Sid Schneid, everybody, co-chair of Independent Jewish Voices uh, in his home in Vancouver. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, this is Music is a Weapon, and this week some songs about the human experience based upon the, the death of an old friend of mine. Many of you might know Liz Barkley, who has been an activist in the Toronto left for at least the last 35 years. I met her way back in the very early 1970s in the Trotskyist movement. She was a, she was a militant of some, of some character, she was a, a real fighter. And I always liked her. I didn't know her very well, but I sure as hell liked watching her fight. After I moved west, uh, she led the teacher strike in Toronto. And uh, I remember seeing an editorial picture of her, an editorial, I think it was the Toronto Star, that showed her driving a bus through the lines of bureaucrats and government officials to carry the struggle forward. She was an amazing person. Like many people, the, the surviving this system didn't work very well for her, and she had a fairly hard end to her life, I heard today from some friends, and I think we should celebrate her life. And I think that there's a real temptation on my part today when I was thinking about songs to reach for the old classics, Solidarity Forever and all those songs, Union Made. 
I decided not. I decided we should find songs that are about more about Liz and people like Liz and people like us from a human point of view rather than such a hardline political point of view. Here's Eve Goldberg with Been in the Storm So Long. We've been in the storm so long We've been in the storm so long In this weary world Trying to get along We've been in the storm so long It's a Where the years went 
I can't say it's like I turned around and they're gone away they're gone away yesterday and I find myself on the mountainside where the rivers change direction across the great divide I've been sifting Dusty books and faded papers They tell the story I used to know About what had happened so long ago And it's gone away yesterday And I find myself on the mountainside where the rivers change direction across the great divide and now i heard that old owl calling softly as the night was falling with a question but i replied now he's gone and flown away across that He's flown away yesterday And I find myself on the mountainside Where the rivers change direction across the great divide Kate Wolf's song, Across the Great Divide, sung by Alison Brown, and before that, Been in the Storm So Long, sung and written by Eve Goldberg. One of the things that, that um, happens a lot is that is that we sit down and we try to remember what's happened to us, and uh, I'm 62 years old, and, and I know that from my point of view that I'm 18 years old, too because my ideas haven't fundamentally changed. And uh, I still believe in, uh, in socialism. I still believe that we should fight for it. And I always admire the people who, who stuck to it hard line 
through thick and thin. And, and the people who survived McCarthyism are my heroes, more than anybody else, probably. Here's a song about thinking about the old times. Now don't you think it's crazy This old world and its ways Whoever thought the 60s Would be called the good old days But like the weavers sang to us Wasn't that a time When we raised our hands and voices on the line And we all sang red and roses Joe Hill and Union May we linked our arms and told each other We are not afraid Solidarity forever Would go rolling through the hall We shall overcome together One and all The more I study history The more I seem to find that in every generation there were times just like that time When folks like you and me who thought that they were all alone Within this honored movement found a home And they all sang bread and roses, Joe Hill and Union made They linked their arms and told each other We are not afraid, solidarity forever would go rolling through the hall we shall overcome together, one and all. And though each generation fears that it may be the last, our presence here is witness to the power of the past. And just as we have drawn our strength from those who now are gone, younger hands will take our work and carry on. And they'll all sing bread and roses, Joe Hill and Union Maine. They'll link their arms and tell each other, we are not afraid, solidarity forever. We'll go rolling through the hall. We shall overcome together, one and all. We shall overcome together, one and all. They sang Bread and Roses, sung to us by Cy Con and Friends. Great old song, eh? I think that was fantastic. That's it for this week, folks. This is Mitch Podolik. I'm not on the shit list, unfortunately. See you next week. And that is Alert Radio for March 18th, 2010. Don't forget, you can find us at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. And we hope that you'll join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And, of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. <laughs>